What's up guys, Owen here from The Professional Builder and welcome to the show. We've been working with residential building companies since 2004 and in that time we would have helped over 2,000 build in better resilience, more profit, more time into their business, giving them true wealth. If you're here and you're looking for systems and processes, the ability to hold and retain the best people and do the best projects at the best profit margins, then you're in the right place. That's what we specialize in and it's what we share on this show. We interview great guests, great members, great industry professionals and we bring all of those insights and lessons and learnings to you here so if you like the show please like and subscribe comment and share with your friends if you think that there's somebody that would benefit from this insight then share it along with them we don't have ads on here we don't really do any promotional stuff all we want is for you to get the best value and you can do that and give us feedback and give us the fuel to keep it going by liking commenting and sharing Welcome to the Builder's Ladder, the podcast for residential construction company owners wanting to grow their business and build a business that works for them that makes both more money and more time. Andrew Bailey, MP for Small Business and Construction. Welcome. How are you going, Marty? Good to see you. Awesome. Great to have you here. Now, I've, I've read through the manifesto and I am stoked to hear about the five changes that National is going to make to make it easier and better for residential construction company owners to operate in New Zealand. And before we get into that, I just want to give people a little bit of a background on yourself and if you could talk to a few things. So you've been a member of parliament since 2014, elected to Port Waikato, and you're the spokesperson for small business, manufacturing and commerce and building and construction. Uh, and tax. Oh, and tax. That's one of we the most- call it, We call it revenue, you call it tax. I love it. That's actually one of my questions that I do have down here that I'm going to spring on you. Tax cuts policy and impact on um, building owners, building company yeah, owners. Cool. We'll get to that. So you're a man of action who gets a shitload of done. You've steered two bills through parliament. You're born in the rural sector in Whanganui, went to Massey University, and for your sins, you're a trained CA, chartered accountant. What on earth led you down that path? Well, you've got to start somewhere, and then I did that for a couple of years, and then I went merchant banking basically for thirty odd years. But it was it was good um, entree. You've got to start somewhere in the finance sector. Well, I think one of the biggest things is that as business owners, numbers are the language of business, and so we need to understand what are all the key things that are driving the outcomes in terms of financials, and then what are the levers that we can pull. What what were your lessons as an accountant, and then also running a merchant bank? What were the biggest insights? Well, the biggest thing um, is about understanding cash flow, and most people don't understand it. Most businesses undercapitalize and rely too much on debt. And of course, with small business owners, you know they're offering, obviously, many cases mortgaging their houses, not separating their business activities from their personal activities, which is really important. But I think uh, just ma maintaining cash and making sure that you have got a forward look on that. Most people don't have good models around how they manage that. One of the big issues is even when you've got a growing business, it swallows cash. People think, oh, yeah, I'm growing, so I should be making cash. But 
actually, you know, you have to go and get more stock. You have to maybe take on more people. You have to do more marketing. All that takes a while until you get to a steady state. So every time you increase your business in terms of its growth profile, you know, that's when it's swallowing cash. And of course, when you get into a, a downturn, like we're seeing in the building construction sector, where we're seeing a company basically fall over every day, unfortunately, um, you need to make sure you've got cash because sometimes uh, creditors are not paying you. So, you know, those are important parts of it. Absolutely. And a critical thing is having good forward visibility and understanding when are those progress payments going to hit the bank account from your clients? What do you guys need to do on site to ensure that that progress payment actually gets made? And I guess as a director of numerous companies, you've done a little bit more than just talk about this theoretically or academically or being a run a fish and chip shop you've actually run successful companies so could you tell us a little bit about the boards that you sit on and your own businesses and what lessons you've gained out of those yeah well I when I came back from London I was I worked in Merchant Bank in New Zealand called Southpac and then went to London for quite a few years when I came back my brother and I finished 10 years working for someone and for Lloyd's group and then my brother and I set up a number of businesses or took them over. So ultimately, we think I've had 14 businesses ranging from cafes through to large farming businesses through to manufacturing and, and property development. So the whole the whole gambit. And I think at one stage, we employed about 160 people. Hindsight probably had too many businesses, even though we sort of split them between us. He looked after some and I looked after others. So we had a clearer line of sight. One thing with um, businesses, you know, they all... What you've said there is focus is an entrepreneur's superpower. Being laser focused and and it's very difficult when you're chasing two rabbits, let alone three or four. And also what happens when you get downturns, in in the business cycle that inevitably happen, all businesses get affected, some less so, obviously, but they sort of end up having lots of multiple issues going on at the same time. So I think that is probably the big thing, being more streamlined, more clear about what you're trying to achieve and having, and the other thing, of course, is having good management teams. All the businesses we had, except I did one startup in a coin-operated rubbish bin business, actually, which I still have, uh, or they don't sort of run it, but is having good teams of people, people you can rely on, good CEOs, MDs that you can call on. So you are giving them good, supporting them strategically, but making sure they're implementing, which is the other big thing, which is around implementation. Absolutely. I think two key facets that you mentioned there. One is expect, inspect what you expect. So you need to have balances, checks, reporting systems each week in terms of numbers, what are they reporting back? And the second thing there is to build a business rather than a busy job with everything on your shoulders. And that's what we see in the construction sector a lot is the guys who are wanting to grow is that step up to go from builder mindset to business owner and then ultimately entrepreneur as they grow. And that that comes with its own challenges, managing cash flow and also, you know, streamlining the process. So I guess... Uh, Hey, just just on that, that fascinating. You know, I bought and sold businesses for thirty years, uh, for for clients. You know, I'm talking several hundred million dollar type businesses, and I can tell you when I used to go in to look at acquiring a business on behalf of someone, my first question to the owner would be sitting down over the boardroom table, just having a coffee. My first question to them was, "When did you last have a holiday?" You might think a pretty weird start for a conversation. 
and I always loved it when the MD or whoever or the owner, whatever, would say, oh, you know, Andrew, I've just come back from four months in Italy. We had the most wonderful time. So we'd have a great chat about the holiday. But all I was learning out of that that one question is, A, uh, can you uh, step away from your business? Have you set it up in a way that you can? How, and then, of course, the thing would be, well, how did you monitor the business while you're away? What systems you had in place? And it also told me about the strength of the management team. And so that one question would be the difference between maybe whether we would buy it or whether we wouldn't, or certainly would determine the ultimate value for that business. So one thing I'd say to you, and just your, your very thing, Marty, that is the question you should be asking yourself. Can I go away to Italy for four months? And if I can, and I've got the systems in place, you've got a good, powerful, a valuable business. Absolutely, 100%. That's what we work through with our construction company owners is moving them from builder to business owner to entrepreneur. And at the business owner level, sort of the three to 10 mil mark, it's about building out your management team and making sure that you've got a great project manager, a great estimator, and a great sales and marketing team or function. And then someone in the office that supports you rather than you trying to do everything. Yeah, it's live. <laughs> All right. So I've read through your manifesto. Yeah. And I love its simplicity and how it covers off the five big key aspects that are slowing the construction sector down. And I'd love to talk those through how New Zealand building company owners are going to be better off under a national league government and particularly if we can cover off these five key things. And the first thing was, how do we go about streamlining the consent process to cut the compliance contest and also compliance costs and also the weight to get these done? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. I'll tell you what, the, there's this level above this, and I talk about when I talk to different audiences. Look, one thing I'm concerned about in the building construction sector it employs 285,000 people. It's the biggest sector or employer of people in the country. So it's a big drive of the economy. But we do not have any sort of same, uh, sort of group of rep that represents the industry. And, you know, it's a, it's a diversified sector. You know, got product suppliers through the builders and all those different uh, aspects to the industry. So one of the first things I want to do is I want to make sure that's a much more collaborative approach between the industry and setting its own future and determining its own future. So what I'd like to do is actually set up a representative group that maybe I can meet with once every couple of years. And again, I'm sounding presumptuous about the election and whether I get the role. But if we were to do this, this is what we'd like to do is have a representative group which we can go to and say, look, what are the three priorities we're going to do this year? And let's do them really well. And then the second thing is, what is the role of people like brands and MB particularly in terms of supporting those strategic outcomes? And at the moment, I think we've had an arrangement where particularly, we have, I don't think we've had ministers who have been very close to the industry at all. Yep. Uh, but I'd rather have the industry setting its agenda and then making sure that where we've come in with the government support, what is the role of that support? Rather than necessarily like MB's proposed the H1 standards, I was opposed to that because I thought in many cases it was just adding costs. I'm not against building more sustainable houses, but the, the timing of it and some of the aspects of it, I think, were totally wrong. And I'd rather work with the industry to set that priority. So that's the first thing. 
Um, in terms of the consent process, look, um, and again, I've been involved in building construction and property development. I'm worried I've actually got a project tied up and consenting at the moment. So what we want to do is we want to streamline it. So a couple of aspects. Why is it if I go to Auckland Council, I will have a different experience in terms of making a consent application from the board at Waikato District Council? Why can't we streamline those and make them all seamless? So one of the first things is can we move to a platform that all council 67 BCAs are using? That's the first thing. I'm going to um, clarify things like minor variation. Why do you have to keep going back and getting a, a new consent for a minor variation? Let's, if you've got your broad consent, let's just have some discretion around that. I've also, I am concerned that across our 67 BCAs, one, you might be talking to a consent officer one day who's just yesterday did a hay barn. Today he's working on Commercial Bay in central Auckland. And what I think we should do is take out complicated buildings. I describe them as Category 3 buildings. As soon as you start talking about HVAC, seismic engineering, air con, all that sort of stuff, why don't we just have people who deal with that day in, day out? And if new evolution and innovation comes in, they're aware of it. They're not jumping from one job to another. That's the other bit. I'm also I'm very concerned about triple C issuing of code of compliance uh, one of the ways we're going to do that so first thing was going to we're going to put a five-day working day time limit on once you get that stage you get the triple c issue quickly and the way we're going to do that is to require councils to accept video and digital documentation there's great systems like artisan Absolutely. that brands introduce people, people are doing it overseas other countries yep. uk us are doing it so and when you're building a house, right, we all know it takes between eight and 12 inspections, building inspections. Let's cut that maybe down to two or three. It doesn't mean you don't have to do some ins building inspections. It will be advisable at critical times. But most of the time you can provide document documentary evidence, GPS. I know the guy actually developed Artisan personally. He's a friend of mine. But move to a system where also what that means you can build up a digital record of your house so let's say in five years time you're trying to buy a house how was this house built how was it the structural foundations put on it was on a slope so actually have all that data available at the moment it's not available and so the last bit is i want to introduce more competition into the consent arrangements so uh, under the legislation that we have what's called building accredited building organizations we already have some in places, about five. I've actually met with all of them over the last few years. The biggest one of them is the solution teams in New Zealand who did, they tell me they processed about 11,000 of the 50,000 building consent applications last year. And I want to make sure and encourage them as much as possible so you actually have a bit of an option about whether you go to your BCR or whether you use an independent organisation. Awesome. I love it. One of the best things that I heard was a, pragmatic approach of being industry-led and actually listening to the front lines of what's working with people who are nearest to the problems and grappling with the biggest challenges slowing them down. And that's building company owners, suppliers, manufacturers, as opposed to under the old communist regime, having a larger government impact and a government sector-led led, uh, focus and I'm pretty sure that we as entrepreneurs can do a much better job typically than what has been done in the past under government. And I love the idea of having a, a working party or a committee-led approach to that. Yeah, and, you know, MB's got an important role to play, but to my view, it should be a policy 
advisory a unit that we as an industry and you know we want to drive change we do need to build sustainable homes and i'm not against that at all but the where does the role of mb sit in that that should be supporting industry not being necessarily the driver of it and and also you know it's a three-way conversation it's between the minister it's between the industry and it's and also the other government agencies. And I think if you get a better balance of that, I think, A, we'll work on the higher priorities at stuff, but also we'll get better outcomes because we're much more engaged across it. Absolutely. Now, some of the these are, there's two things I want to bring up next, two flow-ons from COVID. One is rapidly rising material costs, and the second is material delays because we only have one or two suppliers or have of certain things like jib board, et cetera, in the sector. So, yeah, what does that look like under national government and your policies around improving that? Hey, so during the COVID lockdown, when we were experiencing the plasterboards crisis, I actually wrote a member's bill. This is where an individual MP can write a bill and submit it to put, to deal with the, the plasterboard crisis. So what I looked at is, and I got advice from the industry, obviously, but... My question is, why can't a product that meets US, European, British standards, Australian standards, uh, why couldn't a plasterboard like that be automatically accredited to be used in New Zealand? And so that was what my bill is, and I was very specific about the criteria of, of plasterboard in each of those jurisdictions. The minister at the time subsequently picked it up, and she formed a working group, but that was part of what the, how they dealt with it the plasterboard crisis what we're going to do is change the thinking at the moment if you want to bring in a new product on average rough it'll cost you sixty thousand per SKU, and it'll take you a year to get new product accredited and i've spoken to many people i want to turn the thinking upside down and say look if a product or product system has met one of these internationally accredited standards and i'm talking about reputable accredited standards why don't we allow them to be used in New Zealand as a matter of right? Because not only will that enable innovation to happen, but it will enable innovation to happen more quickly. And so I think we should put in sort of three layers. If it's a standard stuff that's used in, in a house, it has no risk or very little risk around it, you know, that as a matter of right will just get approved. What I think we should be doing is if it's, I think what I'd like to do is set up a, a very experienced group of practitioners, and I'm not talking government officials, I'm talking people like you and I, me, older people, who are very, well, more, let's use the term experienced people in the industry, and to review by exception whether one of those products that meet these high international standards, whether in fact they should be subject to further testing in New Zealand. And for instance, if you look at a high-risk part of a house, and I keep talking about a house, but it could be a commercial building, but it's a wet area. So that group might look at a product and say, look, that's only been accredited in the EU a year ago. Actually, it's a high-risk area, and we've got some concerns. Why don't we require that to be a brand accredited or code marked or whatever, right? But by exception. Because what we want to do is everything should be able to come into New Zealand. There still will be a requirement, and I want to make sure this is clear to people, there will be a requirement for anyone importing that product to be clear about the specifications of that product and for that to be disclosed. Because I think at the moment we don't do enough of that. So everyone's clear about it, but some will require further accreditation. But in the main, most of the elements should be able to come into New Zealand. But you should know who actually is importing it. Absolutely. And that'll make a massive difference to 
one, keep prices relatively competitive, two, yeah. reduce the amount of delays. And that yeah. has a massive onflow in terms of holdups, not getting progress payments through builds going on hold and then ultimately cash flow on relatively small builders having a massive negative impact. And the, the other way is the issue with currently is that if you want to get a council approval, you have to go council by council to get approval of your new product. Well, there is a system to be able to do that. And what we're going to do is actually use the MB system. It's already in place to be able to require, once a product's been certified, it's been okay, all councils will have to accept it. It won't be any discretion around that. Awesome. I love it. And if we look at um, worker shortages and the immigration policies, so for a while, a lot of guys were concerned about labor shortages and there's opportunities to bring in Qualified estimators, QSs, and carpenters from, in particular, the Philippines, the UK, and some from South America as well. What will National do to improve that situation to get rid of the red tape and allow more people who are qualified to come in and start working and make it attractive to them? Well, first thing, I think there's actually four sources of potential labour source for building construction sector. There's obviously immigration. And we want to bring in skilled people. At the moment, we're bringing in a whole lot of people who are not skilled and actually probably not been subject to proper scrutiny, which is a real worry for New Zealand, actually. It's a sleeper. We want to move back into areas of skills where we've got deficiencies. So again, that's why I want to have a reference group, because one of the things I would be talking to that reference group is, look, you're 80,000 people short in the industry now. I know that. What are you doing about workforce planning? What are the future skills that you see in the next 10 years? And how are we building back to create that workforce now? So, you know, I don't think there's enough strategic sort of perspective around labor. So moving to skilled immigrants and the other area, which I'd suggest in the building construction sector is actually project managers. Very good height. We have a dearth of really experienced Absolutely. project managers. Yeah. So that's one thing. The one thing I will acknowledge that Labor has done well is around the apprenticeship schemes. And we will want to continue that. And I think that is one of the few things that this government has done pretty well. So we want to continue the apprenticeship schemes. The second thing, the third area is really how are we getting people out of schools, going through training and linking them to good building construction firms. And I'm having the same conversation in the manufacturing sector. In fact, I was having it in Hamilton yesterday. And what I want to put in place is a better connection where people can connect as a school kid, maybe year 12, 13, maybe even back to 10 through the Gateway Program and other ways, but where they can get hands-on work experience, people are going to judge them with their potential employees, but also the, the younger people can actually see what it's like to be in the building construction sector, which is increasingly getting very sophisticated. And the mm -hmm. other area, of course, is that we've now got 172,000 people on the job seeker benefit, 50,000 since five years ago six years ago, we need to get some of those people off. Not everyone's going to be able to come off that, but there are a lot of people who should be back in work who are not in back in work. And we made an announcement yesterday about that. Awesome. I love it. What about an overview of tax and what your fiscal policies will mean for a business owners and in particular residential construction company owners? Well, look, we've uh, announced tax cuts for working New Zealanders because the big issue around taxes and beneficiaries 
have had a rapid, rapid rise in their beneficiary rates. We've seen the minimum wage go up dramatically at, all, at the moment. One of the big issues we've got and why we're having a lot of trouble getting people back into work is the benefit. The difference between the benefit and the minimum wage is about $50 a week. So for some, a lifestyle choice at $50 a week is better on better a benefit. Yeah. What we have been focused on is actually working New Zealanders, mums and dads who are doing it really tough. They're, you know, they've seen the interest rate go up on their mortgage. They've seen their fuel price go up, grocery prices go up. So the tax cuts, together with an incentive to help them, if you've got early education, children to go to ECEs, early education centres, package roughly of about up to $250 a, a fortnight for a working family with children. So that's to try and get people money back in people's pockets who are really struggling now. But in terms of other tax changes, for small business owners, I want to look at things like, why do you have to pay provisional tax on 15th of January when you're in the middle of a holiday? Why do you have to pay provisional uh, terminal tax a short time after the end of the year? Why don't we push it out from May to Ju July when mm -hmm. you've got much more certainty around the terminal tax so you don't incur penalties? I want to look at things like, simplicity around paying your tax bills. Also, why do we have all these different depreciation schedules? Why don't we sort of simplify that and make accounting a lot more easier? So there's a whole lot around making it easier to pay your tax and be much more clear about that. And from one of the other regulatory things I want to do, I'd like to get IRD, uh, MB, ACC, WorkSafe, with those types of government organisations in a room and say, why do you keep asking business owners, including building instruction people, the same questions? Why can't you use the data, and probably IRD has most of it, about the same, and get it and use it across common platforms, right? And then if you want to go and ask some specific questions, make sure they're very specific, that they haven't been asked before. But, you know, things like that is just trying to reduce the regulatory impost on small business owners and building construction firm owners. I love it. Will you be um, introducing any white elephants like Kiwi Build or, you know, what, what are your thoughts around uh, bring back the Muldoon era big projects, um, Kyanga Aura involvement, etc. Yeah, look, when the 100,000 target put out by Phil Twyford around the Kiwi build, you know, I sat there being, you know, former business owner going, never oh, okay, happen. never going to happen because you haven't talked about one initiative to actually catalyze, make that happen, right? It was just blab. And everyone should have sent through it, including the media, but they didn't. What we're going to do with Kyangaroa, and this is Chris Bishop's um, feel, but we want to make sure that we are building houses. When we left office, we had 5,000 people on the social housing wait list, and we were, Labor got stuck into us about it. Well, now there's 27,000 people, and we simply need to build more houses, social houses. So Absolutely. what we're going to do with Kyangaroa is we're going to use the private sector, and particularly the, the uh, what we call CHIPS, uh, the community housing providers to go and build those for us and we're going to help them do it and make sure we can do it and we're going to make changes to the RMA as well to actually help that and we're going to help councils fund, help councils in, in terms of their funding of infrastructure. So you've got three-pronged uh, approach to actually trying to build more houses. In terms of um, the private sector and 
continuing the building, you know, we're now in a bit of a downturn. And, you know, this is the time when government speech should intervene. When you have market dysfunction, this is the time you should have Kangaroo out there going to smaller builders and saying, can you do us a few houses? Because That's it'll right. keep you in business, right? And by the way, we want to have a consistent platform or building program because what we do in New Zealand, we go up and down like this, this big wave which kills builders, right? And so actually this is the time Kaingaroa should be going to small builders. Not in the last couple of years where we've had absolutely gangbusters in the industry and all we've doing, done is inflate it, right? So we will be using third-party builders, good builders, to go and build some of the government housing as well and try and make this trough as shallow as it is, as it can be, because that is the role of government. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think um, one of your policy points is better mental health support. And there's a great group called Mates in Construction yeah. um, that we've got a, uh, I've written a book called The Profitable Builder. We'll be partnering, bringing that out soon. And we would like to support Mates in Construction and put the proceeds towards that as well. And New Zealand has a very high suicide rate, one of the highest suicide rates, I think, in the OECD, particularly for teens. And then in the construction sector, it's the construction sector is the highest suicide rate in the world by sector. And I think part of this comes from, for company owners anyway, comes from a result of poor business decisions, lack of knowledge, stress of trying to run a business and do project management, do estimating, clients, manage that, plus tax, health and safety, et cetera. What specifically would you like to see happen to one, improve mental health? And two, what are your thoughts on improving business education um, for the construction sector? Hey, well, first of all, I acknowledge you, Marty, for what you're doing. The more we talk about mental health, the better. And also, mates in construction, I've had a reasonable amount to do with them. I've actually, Victoria, who was the former CEO, who's just recently moved, but I've met the new people as well, uh, been to see their programs. And in fact, I attended one of their workshop meetings at, on a building site in Wellington. I actually walked down and sat in with all the team doing it one morning, early morning in, in Wellington. So I've, I've seen firsthand what they've done and do, and I congratulate them as well. As you say, building construction sector is worse, followed by farming shortly thereafter, unfortunately. So what we've said is that we are going to support mental health in the building construction sector and also the small business sector. So National will have a Minister for Mental Health, the first uh, government minister, Matt Ducey, who's my good colleague, um, is actually my year, but he's a former professional in mental health. He worked in England for quite many years on this area. And he's basically highlighted the issue and really taken the, the government to task over what their uh, lack of activity. So what we've been talking about, and in the building construction sector, for instance, the you may not be aware, but the electrician component of the building construction have already got in place their own specific program for electricians. I, went, I attended uh, when they launched it in Wellington, and mm -hmm. they have got a third-party provider to come in and support the electricians so uh, they can get different levels of support. And the big issue around it is everyone, if we talk about mental health, well, some people might just need a conversation one day through to, you know, we seriously need to talk to you today. Yep. And actually you need to be in my That's office right. or I'm coming to see you right now, right? Yep. And so the issue that Matt and I have been talking about is how do you 
provide a program that has the different layers of support, and we want to use third-party providers to do it. And so initially, it might be a voluntary approach. I'm not feeling good. So through the employer, can I do it discreetly, confidentially, go to a third-party independent provider, ramping up to something much more high level? And of course, that's where we want to be. And it's domain, it's common, whether you're a small business owner or building construction. And that's the focus. Actually, it's not about money. Actually, the side of it's the monetary side of it's relatively modest. It's yep. about having a program and the third party providers, we want to use third party providers. We don't want to necessarily run it through a government process because I think that's probably the easiest way of actually putting it in place. And so we've made a real commitment. We're going to look at uh, mental health for building construction sector. That's so good to hear. I think that's one of the highlights of our, our chat today. So we, we've covered five key areas today. So number one, streamline building and consents. Two, resolve worker shortages. Three, import innovative products and get rid of the monopoly duopoly that we've got going on. Four, use innovation. And five, better mental health support. What? So a lot of governments make promises. What's your timeline for implementation or your order of priorities that you see having the biggest impact? Well, I think um, worker shortages is one. And, mm -hmm. you know, the immigration settings and things like that will put in place pretty quickly, right? Apprenticeship training will go on. The things like the schools, that's a longer term. And I'm looking at quite a few pilots I'm doing in the manufacturing as well. Um, I want to find a model that we can deploy across provincial cities particularly. So that one's reasonably easy. Streamlining building and sense, there's parts of it we can do straight away, like uh, mandating use of video and recording artisan type projects there's other sites and there you know there's other systems there's another one i'm aware of in in tauranga we will require that and that i don't know whether that needs legislation or regulation but that's something we can bring in pretty quickly most a lot of councils are using it anyway we'll be encouraging them and also you know it's sitting down with local government and saying, well, can we move to a better platform? So that might take a little bit longer. The innovation stuff, that is something we can do relatively easy because we've got the framework. I've actually wrote the legislation for the plaster board one. So how we replicate that? The big question is who do we put on that panel to sort of uh, the old experienced people who can review that? You know, we need to find good people. So parts of it is really quite quick. Other parts will take longer. And also, what in the coming back up, you know, I talked about this reference group. What I want to do is have people that experience practitioners. I don't want to work through advocates. I want people who are at the coal face, whether it's at CAD designing, you know, that that front end design stuff, architecture, through to you know product suppliers, all that sort of stuff. But you know, I'm sort of thinking and looking around the industry. I've met a lot of people over the last few years. But that group I like to get in place as quickly as possible. And it's really about identifying the right people. I love it. And now I guess we're going to land this plane. You, My business partner, Owen, is like yourself, a coast-to-coast -coast athlete, runs marathons, Ironmans. He's currently just flying from Croatia to Montenegro to do a 33-kilometer ocean swim with a, with a lot of other you know, world-class Olympic athletes. But I see you've taken it a step further and you're sort of like Sir Ranulph Fiennes, uh, one of the world's greatest explorers, and you've gone to both poles, dragging a sled, and 
yeah, I just what has taken you to take on these challenges and, and what do you gain from them? Hey, well, I've always had a view, you have your main job, you know, vocation, and then I've always wanted to have something outside and a separate career. And so life's a progression, isn't it? So when I was young, I was in the army. And then I, when I went to England, I was in the parachute regiment and then came back and started doing multi-sport events, including Coast to Coast and all those sort of things. And I got to a stage where those young bucks started to beat me. And at that point, I moved on and uh, started mountaineering. So, you know, I started climbing Mount, I did Mount Cook and Mount Aspiring and all that sort of stuff. And then I thought, well, where do I go next? And I had this bright idea I'd go to Antarctica. So I went down there and climbed the highest mountain called Vincent Massif, everyone thinks Mount Everest. And then we dragged sledges to the South Pole. Came back to my wife and said, look, oh, that's it. And then she looked at me and yeah, went, yeah, right. And then I've got uh, three boys. And of course, you know, when I was young and um, I used to work probably too much. And so what I thought, I would do a trip, which each of the three boys, but they had to choose it. So my oldest one said, why don't we go to the North Pole? So we duly did. We did the uh, North Pole. We actually broke the record to the North Pole, not because we were trying to, but we just had a great run, great team. There was only four of us. Uh, and there's no certainty about getting to the North Pole because you have these big leads which is open water that freeze over. So we did that, and I must admit, the depth of the pole, ice at the pole, is only 1.6 metres, and you need 1.5 metres. When I left, I said to my son, you were incredibly lucky, probably in a decade or whatever, you won't be able to fly a plane up here, and you won't be able to do this again. So the um, second son, three years later, we... Um, and I always wait until about 2022 or so. Um, we followed the routes of Lawrence Arabia by camel through Jordan. No one has ever done that. Everyone's been to Lawrence Arabia's sites during the First World War, where he worked with the Arab forces. But we followed him and now dispute some of his claims because we lived like him. There was only three of us, my son and I, and the guy who had this camels. Did these five? We did 500 k's on camels over a month, living like Bedouin and getting resupplied once a week. And so we'd now dispute how far he could ride a camel and all that sort of stuff. But we've written that up and published it in England. And then the last trip, are, I've done, are you going to turn that into a book or? Yeah. Um, well, we published it, uh, and I think ultimately when I leave politics, I might go back and um, actually do. Uh, masters or something on Lawrence Arabia and will give me the excuse to do more traveling on camels in places like Saudi Arabia. Awesome. I, and I'm then ma massive Michael Palin fans. So oh, yeah, cool. Sounds very similar to a lot of his travels. And then the third one we've just finished is um, we went, my youngest son, we went uh, over Christmas and New Year, we went to Mongolia, the real Mongolia, not the Indian Mongolia controlled by China, right up on the Russian border. And it's the last of the nomadic reindeer people called the Dukas. And we went in there in winter. No one's ever visited them in winter. I took a film crew in. We're making that into a documentary, which we hope to sell around the world. But 20 years' time, they will all be gone. Really difficult life. It was cold as heck. It was down to minus 47 at one stage, but every day it was minus 20. They live on meat all winter, and we're riding reindeer 20 to 30 k's a day and they wolves come and get 10% of their crop every year and just take them apart. Very um, tough way of life, but fantastic fun. And what better than doing it with your kids? And that the big thing about doing it with your, my kids is that you move from them being your children or your child to actually being 
yeah, contemporary on a very difficult journey, and they are now, you know, colleagues. And that's that that transition from child to adulthood, which has just been a wonderful journey. I love it. My last question is: Who are your idols, mentors, coaches that you've either been coached by that have helped you accelerate your results, either in business or adventure, you know, endeavors, or anyone that you look up to in any field? Hey, well, I'm I'm a student of history. I love history, and um, you know, I look at people like Winston Churchill, who's now getting hammered. But you know, if you think about the diversity of his um background, you know, he was uh, an author. He was a fabulous author. Through to a polo player, he became a master bricklayer. Through to a beautiful artist, all that sort of stuff, as well as that intellectual grunt that he brought to politics. So people like that, I I think, uh, you know, bring a diversity of interests and make the uh, character more complex and more rich. So, you know, as a historical figure, I think, you know, someone like that, but, you know, there's wonderful examples. I quote you many more like that. But, you know, during life, you know, you've got to find good mentors and good people who give you good advice. And you're always searching from, and I've had lucky enough in in my career, particularly when I worked at Southpac, I had some great friends who who've continued to be long-held friends now. So, my advice to anyone is look out for those people who show a care, who show an interest and will work alongside you and ultimately help you steer you on your path because sometimes in life it doesn't go as well as you hoped and you need those people to can rely on. And even in politics, you know, we have a year group that you go into and you know, they become your close buddies. And when times are getting tough and you're getting hammered in the in media or whatever, you need someone that you can go to. And then outside of politics, you've got to have your friends, you've got to look after them and keep in touch with them. And if you're lucky enough to have a life partner that you can rely on, that's really helpful as well. Absolutely. And I have a long-suffering wife, I've got to tell you. Also, yeah, I've got a 13-year suffering. Wow, she's a lucky lady. Let's, t- let's tell the oh, truth. What, what, for you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been married 32 years and I've, um, I'm pretty lucky. Well done. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. I greatly appreciate you taking time out uh, for the podcast to share your views, policies, and how we can get the building and construction sector moving faster, more productive, more profitable, and make life better for all the company owners out there and all the workers as well. Hey, thanks, buddy. It's a very important sector, and that's why it needs care and attention and support. 100%. All right, my man, two ticks blue. Look forward to seeing you in four to five weeks' time. Hey, thank you. Cheers for that. Bye-bye. Cheers, Andrew. See ya. Bye-bye.